everyone, and welcome back to the Girls in Action podcast. We're your hosts, Naya, Melissa, Nava, and Brianna. Hey, y'all. So glad to be back with you. Happy Women's History Month. Shout out to all those powerful women out there. So I'm going to start up with a little check-in question. What is one thing that you've done for self-care today? Um, I can go first. I think today, although I had a day off, I did take some time to do homework, but also time to rest. So I just kind of balanced my day. And I think that worked really effectively. That's great. Um, Today for self-care, I went on a walk with my family and that was just really relaxing to get some fresh air. Nice. Um, Today, well, actually every day, I do a little mini workout for myself. Yeah. I need to take some tricks from you guys, but um, today I got on a phone call with my friend, which was really nice because I haven't seen her in a while. So I don't know if you can call that self-care, but I do. Um, Yeah, I'm super excited to be here with you guys today. I'm glad we're all taking care of ourselves this Women's History Month and always. But um, today we're going to be talking about the origins of feminism and the feminist movement. And within that, a little bit about white feminism and how women of color have been historically excluded from this movement. And then at the end, we're gonna give some potential solutions and some steps we can take so we can start viewing this idea of feminism through a more intersectional lens and lifting up all different kinds of voices. Yeah, that's exactly right. And let's just start with a brief intro. So the suffragist movement started around 1848 for the fight for gender equality, and it had its origins much earlier. Um, The goal of the suffragist movement was to give women the right to vote. And it was a long fight that involved a variety of women. Um, this goal was for women was able to vote was finally achieved in 1920 with the passing of the 19th Amendment, which said that no one could be denied the right to vote because of their sex. While this marks a turning point for women, it didn't include all women. The majority of Black women were still blocked by voting by literary tests and voter ID laws. Yeah. So basically. Um... It, like Naya was saying on paper, right, the 19th Amendment said that women could vote, right? We couldn't discriminate by sex. But the majority of Black women and other women of color fought for, had to fight for decades after 1920 to get the right to vote. And I think um, going into this episode, I want to kind of clarify what the right to vote represented for different types of women. And so for white women, who are the people that are usually talked about a lot um, in history courses and just in mainstream feminism, you know, we tend to highlight white women and the work that they did. Um, And, you know, we're moving into a time where we are talking about women of color a lot more, which is good. But um, for white women, the vote represented sort of the symbol of parity with their husbands and brothers. Parity meaning like getting up to the same level, right? Being equal with their husbands and their brothers. Um, And while this was the case for many women, some women had alternative motives as as well, and the vote represented something a little bit bigger for them. So for Indigenous women, for example, um, I've always found this ironic, but a lot of white suffragists um, actually studied Indigenous communities to look at the um, gender equality that was happening there and the different roles of different people in the community. And they studied those communities to kind of base their 
um, feminist movement and their goals and stuff off of this uh, community that was more, that emphasized gender equality more. Um, and, but then when the 19th amendment passed, they, native women weren't included because it only applied to US citizens and ironically enough, even though indigenous people were here long before us, um, for a long time, indigenous people were not allowed citizenship in the United States. So the vote for indigenous women meant um, that they were acknowledged by the American government and it was acknowledged that indigenous people were part of the American people. But again, this acknowledgement didn't come in 1920. It came much, much later. Yeah, and a few of the things that blocked any non-English speakers from voting were things like literary tests and um, the Voting Rights Act was extended to prohibit discrimination against language minority citizens, which was more than a half a century later. So women got the right to vote in 1920, but for these Latinx folks, they couldn't officially vote until 1975. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, anyone who was language minority, that was a huge barrier. Um, another big group of women who had to wait a very, very long time um, until they had the right to vote was Black women. And for Black women, the vote represented, sure, it was a symbol of parity with her husband, but it was also a chance for her and her husband, along with their brothers and sons. It was a method of empowering these Black communities, putting them in a position where after emancipation, entering into the era we call reconstruction and beyond, they had some sort of thing to work with, right? Some sort of say in the American political system, some sort of voice with that vote. And so the idea was that they were using this vote collectively. For sure. Um, so two women who stood up for the right to partake in the suffragist movement were Ida Wells and Mary Church Terrell. So Ida Wells became more engaged with the suffragist movement from her anti-lynching work. So she wanted to march with her Illinois state delegation, but they told her that she had to march in the back with the other black women. She persisted and marched in the end with her delegation flanked by white women towards the front. So Ida Wells was truly persistent and showed that she deserves a spot in the suffragist movement. Um, and then Mary Church Terrell, she spoke at the National American Women Suffragist Association Convention in Washington, DC. And her speech encouraged white women to open their eyes to the systemic violence and racism that black women faced, especially during slavery. So these were two women who really persisted and ensured that they were able to participate in the suffragist movement just as much as any other woman was able to. And then the last group of people we're gonna talk about, though there were many other minority groups, um, Asian American women. It was really interesting during this time to watch this because um, American born Asian women were allowed US citizenship. So some of them could vote. Um, depending on you know, language barriers and things like that. But first-generation Asian women who had immigrated to the United States were not um, allowed voting rights until 1952, which was more than three decades later. And just a quick note before we get into the rest of this episode, it's important to realize that just because we got the vote on paper, um, that equality or that vote doesn't always mean, political equality does not equate to social equality. So a lot of the times we'll say, well, we have laws to, to stop discrimination for this or that, but those types of um, prejudices and discrimination still happen. So that's just, I think, something important to know as we talk about all of these laws that are in writing, it doesn't automatically um, 
you know, fix things. Just having a law, it takes a lot more work by a lot of people to get closer and closer to our goals of equal treatment, right? Um, but yeah, so a lot of the white feminists that we learn about in history class, um, we're gonna talk about some of those in a bit, but um, a lot of these women had jealous political motivations for excluding specifically black suffragists from the movement, but all different women of color. But when we talk about their different motivations for the vote, right, um, the black women vote, giving black women the vote meant not only that we were working for gender equality, but also that we were supporting racial equality. And so the vote for the black woman had to go hand in hand with the fight for racial equality and enfranchisement. Um, so yeah, we're gonna talk a little bit about how those women were excluded and why, and why it's a problem that we don't always learn about the women who were excluded from this movement. Yes, for sure. Um, so at this time in history, the 15th Amendment was in the process of being passed. And the 15th Amendment would have ensured that gender and race wouldn't play a role in a citizen's right to vote. Yeah, so basically white women thought that if they supported black women, they would also be supporting racial equality, which was true. Um, white women believed that they basically didn't want black men to get the vote before white women because they worried it would damage their image or they were embarrassed or whatever it was. So when the 15th Amendment passed before the 19th Amendment, rather than celebrating that victory for those black men, a lot of the white suffragists were bitter that they had not come before them. And through this, Black women felt betrayed when white women and suffragists didn't support this amendment. And this betrayal weakened the camaraderie that Black and white suffragists had shared. And so in history class, most of us learn about Alice Paul and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. But in many schools, we don't learn about their oppression against Black female suffragists. So two examples of when this oppression occurred was when Alice Paul left out Black women from the Howard University sorority because she was worried from criticism from other white women and oppression that they would have. So through this worry, she just decided to not include them in this suffragist parade. And the second example was during this prominent meeting in Seneca Falls, New York in July 1848, where suffragists met together to discuss white women's right to vote. During this meeting, no black women were there because they weren't invited to attend this meeting. I fully agree with you, Naya. There are so many amazing women of color who have contributed so much to our culture, history, and society that we don't learn about. Sojourner Truth is a woman who I believe should have been in our history books. Sojourner Truth was an abolitionist and women's rights activist. Sojourner Truth escaped to freedom in 1826 and spent the rest of her life dedicating herself to equal rights for all. Her famous speech, Anti Woman, was targeted towards the obscurity towards Black women and the promotion of equal rights. My favorite thing that Sojourner Truth said was if it is not a fit place for women, it is unfit for men to be there. Yeah, thank you for mentioning her, Nava. I, I, she was an amazing woman. So as we look at this history, we're wrapping up our little history lesson here. But um, I think it's important as we look at history that we also look at the way that women of color were excluded because of this compounding discrimination, which meant for a harder and longer fight for them. Um, but again, it, back then, and even in our lives today, we have to refuse to leave others behind just because it gets us closer to our own destination. And so, um, yeah, we want to join them in their fight, right? 
So Melissa, what are some of the ways that we still see this exclusion happening today? If you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, thank you, Brianna. I think that events in the past have definitely defined how we see the feminist movement today. And unfortunately, there's still traces of feminist on feminist hate, and they're coming from all intersections of life. And at times, it's considered that only white women are the representatives of the feminist movement. So first off, I want to define a term that relates to what Brianna was talking about. This is called the white feminist theory, which is also a liter literary school of thought. So this feminist theory is mainly written from the standpoint of white women who often actively ignore the women of color's needs or assumed them to be exempt from white women's concerns and overgeneralize their platform to speak for all women. While the entire feminist movement is based on the idea of sisterhood, in reality, this is only applied to white middle-class women who do not see a reason to expand their focus outside of their own political needs. And so due to this, race was rarely considered to be a pressing topic in the mainstream movement. Today, feminist movements contain more women of color than in the 1910s and 20s. Although the inclusion of women of color has escalated since the 1900s, some feminist movements still exclude women of color. But even when it is included, definitions of gender oppression and forms of resistance are based on white women's experiences and definitions of race. Oppression and forms of resistance are primarily based on black men's experiences. Therefore, women's of, women of color's marginalization cannot be assumed to, to be covered by both the feminist and anti-racist movements combined. And before I talk about the exclusion of intersectional feminists, I wanted to talk about the fourth wave of feminism. So during the third wave of feminism, this was during the 1990s and until the late 2000s, feminists sometimes emphasized intersectional perspectives in their work, but this, despite this, some have argued that feminist media continues to overrepresent the struggles of straight, middle-class white women. Nevertheless, in recent years, authors like Kimberly Crenshaw, someone who we've talked about in the past, developed the theory of intersectionality, which is a clear opposition to white feminism. Rather than analyzing society from a unique perspective of race or gender, she calls for a more complex analysis of systems of oppression using multiple and overlapping lenses such as race, gender, sexuality, etc. And so, White feminism portrays a view of feminism that can be separated from issues of class, race, ability, and other oppressions. And actually, something interesting that I found through my research was a cool hashtag, or I guess controversial, that surfaced on Twitter in 2013. This hashtag was hashtag solidarity is for white women, created by notable Black feminist Mickey Kendall. So Mickey Kendall um, has absolutely had it enough with mainstream feminism and its exclusion of women of color. And so kind of the catalyst for this hashtag was the Twitter breakdown of this male feminist who was given a platform by high profile, high traffic feminist blogs, despite his treatment of women of color as well as a whole laundry list of offenses. So when Schweizer, the male feminist, started receiving sympathetic post tantrum tweets, Kendall got really angry and she created that whole hashtag. But this hashtag isn't really about the man who created it or the man who kind of incited the whole violence of tweets. Um, 
it's kind of to start a productive dialogue about what mainstream feminism is. And honestly, it's not that diverse. And Kendall really wants to get people listening to BIPOC women because her experiences and those of so many others have been dismissed and discounted for too long by flawed feminist rhetoric that suggests that movement, the movement is not only about gender, is sorry, only about gender, but not race. And so on that note, Asian American, Latinx, Black, and Indigenous women are still not having their voices heard. So with Black women, slavery was used as a comparison to highlight the ways in which white women felt entitled to women's work. While this comparison helped to start the feminist movement, it ultimately diminishes the ways in which racial oppression, oppression was far worse than sexism at the time. And it makes it seem that as though white women were exempt from their own perpetrations of racism, despite their role in perp perpetuating slavery, um, Latina women have also been active in various mixed gender political organizations that focus on issues specific to them. And that those are issues such as immigration and workers' rights. And that could be why they're not regarded and also be heard in the overall feminist movement. And so also for Asian American women, it was thought that participation in the feminist movement was small, but in reality, there are reasons for that limited involvement. And there are also stereotypes surrounding these Asian American women, and it paints them as submissive and passive. Additionally, language barriers can interfere with participating in the movement, and others even work simply within their own groups of their own ethnicities. Also, Native American and Indigenous women have a unique set of challenges that are often unacknowledged by the mainstream feminist movement. Native American groups organizing is primarily focused on issues surrounding land use and colonialism, but the, pres the presence of sexism has consistently been an issue for women activists in general. So Native American sovereignty is seen as being central to gender equality as colonization played a major role in bringing European gender differentials into Native American tribes. So in this sense, by primarily fighting for decolonization, women were also fighting against gender oppression at the same time. Melissa, I totally agree. And I don't know about other people, but before making this podcast, whenever I thought about feminist movements, I always thought about them being led by black or white women. So thank you for expanding my understanding of that subject. As I was saying before with Melissa, the inclusion of women of color in feminist movements could be a lot better. For example, the, organize, the organizers of the Women's March on January 21st, 2017, the day after President Donald Trump's inauguration, had decided to call the event the Million Woman March after the 1977 Million, Million Woman March. But the group was torched to change the name after facing backlash for making their own name of a movement organized by black women, but without including black women in the leadership of the march. Over the years, there have also been more black female authors who have clarified what it means to be feminist while providing important elements of black activism, black feminism, and the history of black women in the US in their work. Angela Davis is an activist and has been a professor for almost all of her life. One of her most famous books, Woman, Race, and Class, 
is focused on the women's movement starting all the way back in the 1830s to the present. It also shows how racism has impacted feminism so much. In this book, she also highlights the role of middle-class white women helping to achieve the right to vote in political elections. Even with their help, Angela Davis ultimately says that the white feminist movement does not recognize the extent of requirements of the black feminist community. Thank you, Nava. And now we're kind of going to shift, shift gears into offering potential solutions on how to really zero in and solve like this problem of like feminist on feminist like discrimination and hate. So women of color have come together in response to racism from the mainstream feminist movement by both emphasizing a shared difference from white women and acknowledging the differences within their own experiences. And so recognizing the ways in which the experiences and histories of white women have been prioritized within the feminist movement, that's crucial to highlighting the need for continued activism and coalition building. And so there's also this term that I kind of want to define um, in order to help solve this huge issue. Um, and it's called multiracial feminism. And this kind of school of thought or solution is formed directly by women of color in response to the need for an analysis of gender dynamics that considers race and the intersection of these identities. This movement acknowledges important identity-based differences that shape unique experience, experiences while still highlighting the universal experiences of women and is prominent among Black, Latina, Asian American, and Native American feminists. Key features of multiracial feminism include recognizing the intersection of gender, race, and class, noting the power hierarchies present in such social identities and the ways in which an individual can be both oppressed and privileged. For example, white women are oppressed via gender, but privileged via race and acknowledging the various forms of agency present given different social and resource constraints. Thank you all so much for letting us know about these different ways that we can um, continue to show up for everyone and not um, make our movements focused on one certain type of person. Um, this was a difficult conversation today and I know looking at history and all of the ways that the negative effects carry on into today, that can be really tiring and really difficult, but I always love talking to you all. So how are we feeling? Thanks, Rihanna, for that little checkout question. I really loved you asking that. Um, I'm feeling great. This was just a really empowering, powerful conversation, and I feel just so motivated to take action. You know, this kind of like takes me to another like follow-up question. Um, out of curiosity, what's something that you found out during your research process that you didn't really know before? So I can go first. Um, I think during my segment, I talked about that whole hashtag and just the rise of activism in the media. And I just thought like that whole, I guess, movement in with the hashtag started in 2013. And I was just impressed that like, we're you know, it was like the dawn of like women using like media to like get their voice and like their point across. And so I was just really empowered by her work. And yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, but something that I learned and that I was really surprised about was 
how many black feminist authors there are and just women of color who are authors in general and who use their writing to be a feminist and fight for civil rights. I never thought about how much how much writing can do that and how powerful it is. And um, I never knew that there were so many feminist authors. I totally agree with you. And I find it appalling that during a movement such as the suffragist movement, systemic racism continues to occur. And I'm glad that through this research and through this episode, we were able to pick apart the movement to uplift the voices of unrepresented suffragists that stood up for their rights. Yeah, I second what all of you are saying. Um, Nava, I like what you're saying about the feminist authors and feminist literature. It's all super powerful. Um, Nava also said something earlier, just talking about definitions and how women of color have been able to make these definitions for themselves. And that has been an empowering device for them. Um, so yeah, just that's been really interesting to learn about. Something that I'm realizing that I have a lot more to learn about is um, just the role that colonization played in bringing Western gender concepts into indigenous communities. Um, I know Melissa touched on that a little bit. So I definitely am gonna be looking into that a little bit more. So if I find any cool resources, I'll be sure to share them with you all on our Instagram. Yes, totally. Thank you so much for tuning into our episode. We love our audience. Y'all are what motivates us. Shout out to everyone. Shout out to like those powerful women. We love y'all. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, yeah, be sure to check out our Instagram at girlsinaction.sf. And if you head over to our blog, which is linked in that bio on our Instagram, we have a book club going on right now. And we have some awesome projects coming up that are going to be led by Melissa and Nava and Naya and myself. So go ahead and check that out. and. Thank you all so much for joining us and we'll see y'all next time. Bye.